You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. most likely dates back to 1494, the explorer Christopher Columbus wrote to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain, suggesting a series of regulations to govern the colonization of Hispaniola and other Caribbean islands. Of his 13 proposed regulations, nine explicitly mention gold. Even before the establishment of government or church officials, item two reads, that for the better and more speedy colonization of the said island, no one shall have liberty to collect gold in it except those who have taken out colonist papers and have built houses for their abode in the town in which they are, that they may live united and in greater safety. While this measure may have been intended to secure the safety of the colonists, it also guarantees that any gold acquired would be recorded and taxed accordingly. In prioritizing the regulation of gold mining even before the establishment of church and state, Columbus says the quiet part out loud, that while Spanish colonization of the New World may have been intended in part to establish the crown's authority or spread Christianity to the natives, its chief purpose was the extraction of gold. Less than 50 years later, the Office of the Holy Inquisition in New Spain would put one of these Spanish colonists on trial, a priest by the name of Pedro Ruiz Calderón, who stood accused of using necromantic sorcery to, among other things, find gold hidden by the recently conquered Aztecs. In this episode, I bring you the story of the Inquisition in 16th century Mexico and the sorcery trial of Pedro Ruiz Calderón. In order to marry Queen Isabella I of Castile in October of 1469, King Ferdinand II of Aragon signed a humiliating agreement limiting his powers in both Aragon and Castile. Included in this agreement were the stipulations that Isabella and Ferdinand would both be commanded by Isabella's father, King Henry IV of Castile, that Ferdinand would not interfere in the business of the church or local aristocratic holdings, and that any document must be signed by both Ferdinand and Isabella in order to be legitimate. In fact, Ferdinand would not be allowed to perform any official action or even leave Castile without his wife's permission. At the time, Ferdinand's contemporaries wondered why on earth the king would consent to such a surrender of power to his wife's authority. However, Ferdinand was playing the long game. And by the time his grandson Charles became king of Spain, no one was laughing. Charles, already Lord of the Netherlands and Duke of Burgundy, became King Charles I of Spain in 1516. Thanks to his German Habsburg heritage, just three years later in 1519, 
He also became Archduke of Austria and was shortly thereafter elected Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Charles' kingdom was vast, stretching from the Netherlands to southern Italy and Sicily, and from Austria to Spain's colonies in the New World. Under his rule, the Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire was completed, between 1519 and 1521, under the conquistador Hernán Cortés. However, faced with the Protestant Reformation, internal strife, and constant wars with France, Charles V left New Spain largely on its own. To make sure his authority still reached across the Atlantic, he established the Royal Audiencia, a high court designed to administer justice in the king's name. In the 1530s, Spanish colonists discovered massive deposits of silver in Mexico's western Sierra Madre Mountains. The Royal Fifth, the 20% share of plunder and mining taxes from the New World that went to the Spanish monarch, solved Charles' money problems and catapulted Spain to an economic superpower. The goal envisioned by Christopher Columbus to extract vast wealth from the New World had been achieved not with gold, but with silver. In addition to extracting wealth, part of Spain's mission in the Americas had been to bring the indigenous population under the authority of the Spanish crown, which had long depended on the Catholic Church for support. In order to bolster their royal authority, Ferdinand and Isabella had established the Tribunal of the Holy Office of the Inquisition, more commonly known as the Spanish Inquisition, in 1478. In Spain, the Inquisition worked together with the Crown to eliminate both heresy and dissent. Following Ferdinand and Isabella's defeat of the Muslim Emirate of Granada in southern Iberia in 1492, the Spanish monarchs turned their focus toward religious homogeneity. That same year, Ferdinand and Isabella issued the Alhambra Decree, also called the Edict of Expulsion, declaring that all Jews in Spain must either convert to Christianity or leave on pain of death. Many Spanish Jews went into exile. Those who remained as converts fell under suspicion and commonly fell victim to the Spanish Inquisition's notorious auto-de-fe. A decade later, similar legislation forced the conversion or exile of Castile's Muslim population. By the time Charles ruled Spain, he extended the ban on Islam to the whole of his kingdom, forcing the conversion or exile of Spain's remaining Muslims by the end of 1525. So when Hernán Cortés realized the sheer scale of the newly conquered lands in New Spain and requested a veritable army of friars to convert the indigenous population, Charles commissioned Franciscan, Dominican, and Augustinian missionaries to convert the indigenous population to Catholic Christianity. It was through these missionaries that the Spanish Inquisition came to the New World. The first record of an Inquisition trial in Mexico dates from 1522. In New Spain, the work of the Inquisition focused on eliminating heresy, broadly defined, and bolstering the authority of the Catholic Church and royal officials. In a 1521 papal bull, Pope Leo X gave the friars extensive freedom and authority to act in locations where there was no bishop or where the seat of the bishop was further than a two-day journey. By 1528, however, Mexico had its own bishop, Fray Juan de Zumarraga. 
Like his contemporaries, Zumarraga existed in the rich intellectual tradition of the Renaissance and Christian humanism. Many humanists in this era saw the New World as an opportunity to build the ideal society, one without the long histories and cultural trappings of European nation-states. Never mind that indigenous peoples had their own long histories and cultural trappings. If there was resistance to this utopian vision in Mexico, it came largely from the conquistadors, whose purposes often included the accumulation of personal wealth, status, and power, and relied on the exploitation of indigenous labor. The humanist case then began to center on the personal dignity of indigenous people. However, these arguments also tended to rely on the idea of the noble savage, a problematic image of the native as someone entirely free of political, economic, technological, and cultural complexity. The debate between church officials on the possibility of conversion centered on indigenous people's faculty of reason. Dominicans tended to argue that they lacked the rational faculty necessary for salvation and should instead be treated like children. Franciscans, like Zumarraga, generally thought that they possessed the full rational capability for conversion and salvation. This, of course, also meant that they could be held responsible by the Inquisition for any unorthodox beliefs or practices. In addition to his office as Bishop of Mexico, Zumarraga also received the title of Protector of the Indians. His interpretation of this title involved protecting the indigenous population from exploitation, a position which put him in direct conflict with conquistadors and Spanish officials, whose economic advancement required the exploitation of indigenous labor, especially in locating and mining silver. Upon taking office, Zumarraga announced that any natives of Mexico that felt abused by royal authorities could appeal to the church through him. When Spanish officials pushed back against this, the bishop openly denounced them. His war with the Audiencia led to the excommunication of its judges and even the placement of Mexico City under interdict. The officials of the Audiencia eventually received absolution and the crown revoked Zumarraga's title of Protector of the Indians. As bishop, Zumarraga served by default as chief justice for ordinary matters, but on June 27, 1535, Seville's Inquisitor General appointed Zumarraga Apostolic Inquisitor, giving the bishop complete control over the administration of the Inquisition in New Spain. On June 6 of the following year, Zumarraga organized a solemn procession to mark the official opening of the Holy Office. When two musicians refused to play for the ceremony, they were among the first to be tried before the new tribunal. For the next seven years, under Zumarraga's watchful eye, the Inquisition in Mexico tried well over a hundred cases. The charges in these cases included heresy, blasphemy, idolatry, and sorcery. A significant number of cases were brought against newly converted indigenous defendants, which upset a number of missionaries who argued that since these were new converts to Christianity, they ought to be exempt from the Inquisition's authority. Zumarraga, determined to eliminate what he saw as idolatry and heretical sacrificial practices, used the Holy Office to prosecute any hint of heresy or apostasy. 
When news of his tactics reached Spain, Zumarraga was also removed as apostolic inquisitor. Out of roughly 20 sorcery cases tried during the seven years that Zumarraga served as apostolic inquisitor in New Spain, 15 were against women, who were mainly tried for creating potions or charms to seduce men. Some cases were brought against men and women who resorted to indigenous magicians for divination, like the 1536 case against the jeweler Juan Franco, who, in addition to other charges, stood accused of consorting with his indigenous slave, Beatrice, while she conjured demons to foretell the future. In addition to Juan Franco, only two other Spanish men were tried for sorcery and superstition during this period. A doctor named Cristobal Mendez, who stood accused of using his knowledge of astrology and charms to try to cure his patients, and a local priest, Pedro Ruiz Calderón, who stood trial for nothing short of necromancy. The inquest into Calderón's alleged use of necromantic sorcery began on January 30, 1540. Calderón was a recent arrival from Spain, who reportedly bragged about his supernatural powers to a number of witnesses. Bishop Zumarraga served as chief inquisitor into the accusations brought by the secretary of the Holy Office, Miguel López de Legazpi. Calderón stood accused of, quote, having made a certain conjuring in order to discover treasures by means of these ceremonies and other invocations of demons. Legazpi also stated that, quote, Calderón knows of the black arts and that he learned them from others, and that he can make himself invisible when he wishes, and that in one hour he can go from these kingdoms to Castile and return again, that he practices and believes in superstitious things, and that he can wish illness upon anyone, that he has in his possession many forbidden books of superstitions, with many conjures and other spells, and other suspicious things touching upon heresy. In order to investigate these charges, the court turned to the secretary of the Royal Audiencia to compile information and offer testimony against Calderón. He said that one witness, Luis Gómez, had come to him with a fantastical story. Gómez said that he had heard tell of a priest, quote, who practiced the black arts and who could divine or discover the whereabouts of any hidden treasure. On account of this rumor, Gómez followed Calderón and a group of laborers to, quote, a little hill of rocks close to this city called Tepancingo, and there he told him to look for the said treasures. He went with them, and there they had several Indians dig and excavate the area, and a few hours later they discovered some gold that the Aztecs had left behind after the conquest, at least 14 or 15 baskets full of golden ornaments. When Gomez asked Calderon where he got his power, the priest told him, In the Levant and in Italy I learned the black arts of divination and prognostication, and there I learned the arts with several others. Thanks to these skills, Calderón said that demons revealed the locations of buried treasure to him, saying, They spoke in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek, and in another language that I did not know. Gomez also testified that the priest, quote, had a spirit familiar whom he held in great esteem and who helped him in finding lost articles and in predicting the future. 
On one occasion, the said spirit or demon told him not to go forward on his horse because he would fall and impale himself upon his sword. The said Calderon listened to his spirit familiar and watched as another horseman advanced and fell off his horse, falling upon his own sword and killing himself. Finally, Calderon reportedly bragged about his romantic abilities, saying that he, quote, used the black arts to just look into a woman's eye and cause her to fall under his spell, enchanting her with a mere glance. Another witness, Gil Gonzalez de Benavides, testified that Calderon, quote, would often go into a room with a young boy, and that by means of the black arts and necromancy, he could turn stones and other metals into gold and silver, and by saying several words, he could also make things invisible and then visible again. He could turn coal into gold, and gold into coal. Like Gomez, Benavides also said that he had seen Calderon discover, quote, several baskets filled with golden ornaments and items that the natives had hidden from the Spaniards. Finally, Benavides too testified to Calderon's prowess with women, saying, quote, he engaged in carnal relations with many women, and that he had bewitched them with certain spells and enchantments that he reads from certain books written in strange characters that only those knowledgeable in the black arts can read. Calderon denied the charges against him, but when the Inquisitors discovered several books in his possession written in strange characters, this evidence lent credence to the witness testimonies, and Pedro Ruiz Calderon was convicted of witchcraft. Calderon's sentence was relatively light. He was exiled to Spain and prohibited from serving as a priest for two years. While it may seem surprising to find a sorcery case against a priest, Calderon's clerical status, in fact, made him a prime candidate for sorcery, since he was allegedly literate in several ancient languages and already had access to a certain amount of spiritual power. What's so striking about this case is that Calderon was most celebrated for his ability to find or create gold. In his reputed abilities to extract wealth, especially gold concealed from the Spanish colonists, and produce even more wealth through his skill in alchemy, Calderon was, in fact, fulfilling the vision put forth by Christopher Columbus half a century earlier. Looking for gold in the New World, Spanish settlers found silver. Between 1500 and 1800, Mexico and Bolivia produced 80% of the world's silver, exporting some 100,000 tons. Some historians argue this influx of silver marked the beginning of the modern global economy and cemented silver as the standard against which currencies would be valued for the next several centuries. In his own account of the Spanish conquest of the Americas, Bernal Diaz del Castillo wrote, since the wise King Solomon built and ordered to be reconstructed the holy temple of Jerusalem with the gold and silver which they brought him, there has never been reported in any ancient writings more gold and silver and riches than what has gone daily to Castile from these lands.
If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and never miss a new episode. This episode was produced by me with the voice talent of Jack Kraus and with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. To learn more about the trial of Pedro Ruiz Calderón, check out John Chuchiak's book, The Inquisition in New Spain, 1536-1820. Special thanks to Enchanted's Patreon patrons for supporting the production of this and every episode. If you want to support Enchanted, please visit patreon.com slash enchantedpodcast. While you're at it, why not rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find us. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow on Facebook, Instagram, and now Tumblr at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. To learn more about the Mexican Inquisition, be sure to check out the sources in the show notes and visit the episode page at enchantedpodcast.net. I'm Corinne Weaven. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted. <laughs>